Amen. So this morning, if you have a Bible, please open with me to John chapter 10. Now, I know what some of you might be wondering. That's not the end of John. <laughs> but what, what we're going to do is actually back up. Now that we know that the resurrection happened, what I think is worthy of this day is going back and looking at Christ's comments about the resurrection before it happened. Uh, again and again in the Gospels, it says that Christ said things about what he was doing and what he was going to do and what it meant that they didn't understand until later. And so it's helpful to go back and see what he said that they didn't understand until later and make sure that we ourselves understand it. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. We're going to be looking at the the great uh, speech on how Christ is the good shepherd, and we're going to consider what that means and what he is revealing about his heart. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness and the grace and the love that you've shown us in your son. We pray, Lord, that you would show us more now, that you would feed your sheep, that you would care for them. You know, Lord, what we are struggling with. You know, Lord, the joys of our hearts and the sorrows of our hearts, and I pray that you would give to each of us conviction and comfort in equal measure. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for the gospel of John. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and amen. Now, if you turn to John chapter 10, there's a speech there from verses 1 to 18, and it's the Good Shepherd speech. Jesus explains that he is the Good Shepherd. And what it's about, ultimately, is relationship. Relationship. The Good Shepherd's relationship with his sheep is based on the the interpersonal knowledge of one another. The knowledge of one another is the basis of the relationship. It says in John chapter 10, verse 14 to 15, I am the Good Shepherd... I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, the use of the Greek word translated as know is far more than cognitive or factual knowledge. The relationship between Jesus and his disciples and his sheep is modeled on the relationship between Jesus and the Father. It's an extension of it. It's part of it. The inner Trinitarian relationship, right? that, that, that heart of God that exists apart from creation, the inner life, the eternal life, the relationship that they had well before there was sunshine, well before there was any created thing, that is what Jesus is talking about in this speech. That's what the resurrection is about. Jesus wants a relationship with us like he has had with the Father for eternity. And so what he wants to do is explain it to us, because knowing him, right, it's about knowing. And if we don't know the relationship that we have with him, the, rela- the kind of relationship he intends for us to have with him, it's very hard to have it. <laughs> the inner Trinitarian relationship supplies the rationale, for the self-sacrifice of Jesus for his sheep. It's a demonstration of what life and authority are for. Jesus has life in himself. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But, and, and what he wants to show us is what it's for. There, then, when he gives us life, when he gives us authority, we will know how to use it. We will know what it's for. Now, we have to go back into the history of Israel and look at what this, why, why does he make this speech? Why does he call himself a shepherd? Why does he call himself the good shepherd opposed to just the shepherd? What is this all about, this speech? Well, if you go to Ezekiel 34... 
verses 1 through 5, this is what we read. This is what Ezekiel had to say to the people of God. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And then Jesus comes, and what does he call himself? The good shepherd. The false shepherds didn't know how to use their authority. They didn't know what life was for. When God looked at the corruption of mankind, especially amongst his people, he laid the responsibility at the feet of the priests and the clergy who had been charged by God to feed the flock, to be a royal priesthood to the nations. These men failed. They did not know what authority was for. They did not know what life was for. The absence of a shepherd is addressed here by Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He is the one who feeds them. He is the one who gathers them, even sheep of another fold, he says. That's what this whole speech is about. He's correcting the mistakes that the leaders of his people have always had. They've always been false shepherds. They've always been more concerned for themselves than others. They've had no idea what authority is for, what life is for. Jesus, the true shepherd, knows how to use his authority and how to use his life to love the sheep. Now, St. Athanasius, in his work on the Incarnation, says many remarkable things, and this is one of them. The Word perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the Word, being immortal, and the Father's Son, was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death in order that it, through belonging to the Word who is above all, and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling, might hereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. Jesus said, you know, I have authority. I have life. If I go down there in the flesh, you know what I can do? I can fix it. I can bring them back. I can feed them. I can heal them. The second person of the Trinity, that's who Jesus is. And sometimes we are over-familiarity, with Jesus causes us to forget this fact. Who is he? Who was he? He he existed for eternity. He didn't suddenly become something when he was born in Mary's, or when he came forth from Mary's womb. He already was someone. And that someone was the second person of the Trinity. The Son, the Word of God. He That is who it is, that took on flesh, that he might suffer so that his flesh could be laid in the ground and raised from the ground to do away with the corruption of flesh forever. He was the only one who had the authority to do it. He was the only one that had the life within himself to do it. Now, our salvation is dearer to Christ than his own life. It's worthy in his sight. But why? That's what I want to talk about. Why? Why does he care about us? What does having us do for him? Nothing. It does nothing. Because what this story is about, even though on Resurrection Sunday we love to tell everyone, hey, Jesus came out of the ground because he loves you so much. 
Now, he does love you, and that's, and that's what he did, right? But, but lo- loving us enough to save us isn't why he did it. That's what he did. There, there's a reason further upstream for why he did it, and that's what I want to talk about. Why did he do this? What is this all about? I get that he saved us. I get that he loves us enough to die for us. I get that. But why? Why? Dying and rising was his way of saying, I love you, to the Father. That's what he wanted to say. He wanted to say to the Father, I love you. And the Father, by accepting him back in heaven and giving him what he already had, all authority in heaven and earth, all the glory that could be had, was the Father's way of saying, I love you. And that's what they wanted. They wanted an exchange of love between the two of them. And we are taken up in that story. That was their desire. Their desire wasn't like, you know, let's go get a bunch of filthy ragamuffins and just have them for the sake of having them. No, having all these ragamuffins, is, it's the means for them to say something to each other. Now, this is a wonderful recommendation of the goodness of God to poor sinners, you and I. It ought to awaken in our souls a rapturous adoration. What do you mean I'm just a token of love? What do you mean I'm just a clay pot? What do you mean that I'm just a doorkeeper? This kind of thing challenges us on a lot of levels. You are merely a bouquet of flowers exchanged between a father and a son. And isn't that glorious? Wouldn't you rather be a bouquet of flowers and that love story than, than, than be a part of anything else? Now, I know it's, it's Resurrection Sunday, right? This is usually we trot out all the evidence, right? 70% of historians agree the tomb was empty. There's 500 witnesses. And let's talk about the fact that the witnesses all tell different stories, which just proves that they actually are telling the truth, right? This is the day where we trot out all the facts. It really happened. It really happened. It really happened. Of course it happened. If you doubt that it happened, I have Bibles for you that you can read. I, I don't want to talk about the facts. I want to talk about what the facts mean. And this is a little trap we set for ourselves every year this time of year, where we, where we go back to the elemental things, the basic things about the, res, about the resurrection. And I want to move beyond that to the deeper things. Why, of all things, all plans, why this? Why this? I, it happened. I'm assuming all along it happened. I'm not going to go through the time to explain it. Again, Bible's in the back. Knowing. Knowing, that is what this speech is about that Jesus is making. That is what our relationship is based on. Not terse, factual, biographical sketch kind of knowing, but truly knowing, intimately knowing. The way a husband knows his wife, the way a child knows their mother, the way a man knows himself. That's the kind of knowing that we should have on on who, why, and what this is all about. The authority given to the Son, the undying life of God the Father given to the Son, is spent by the Son to rescue us. Not because of us, we are the mere beneficiaries. We are taken up in this affection, this mutual indwelling, a giving and receiving of love that began in eternity past. The resurrection of the Son is the great proclamation of love between the Father and the Son to one another. We are not the end, we are the means. The love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father is shown forth in the redeemed gathered before his throne now. 
You are the object taken up to show the love of the Son for the Father and the Father for the Son. Now he has this eternal treasure. And every time the Father sees it, what does he see? He sees how much the Son loves him. That's why he gazes upon us. That's why he loves us. That's why he loves to look upon us. Because when he sees us, he sees the, the Son's love for him. And when the, son, when the Son, there on his throne, surrounded by his hordes of treasure, you say, see, this is how much I love him. And that treasure is you. You were the treasure. And, <laughs> but you were made a treasure. You are a token of love. You are the evidence of love. You are, again, a bouquet of flowers. Now, Jesus makes this knowledge possible through what he tells us about the identity of the Father and the Son and their love for one another, as it's existed for all eternity. And that's what, if you turn now to John 10, 17, I want to look at what Jesus says, because if you, if you read like you normally do, you're just cooking through the book, right? You're going through chapter 10. You don't really understand what he's saying. What is he saying, though? When he, when he says this phrase right here. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So the, has the Father never loved him until now? Were they sitting in heaven and they thought, you know what? The Romans have invented this thing called a cross, called crucifixion. I think we can make something out of that. Is that the conversation that the Father and Son are having in heaven? No. Okay, just to be clear, the answer is no. Okay, it's a rhetorical question. I'll answer it for you so you're not confused. This is what Jesus says. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, if he's an eternal, unchanging God, what is he telling us here? What is he revealing to us? We see a glimpse of the eternal and reciprocal love between the Father and the Son. The son loves his father so much that he is willing to accept the charge to surrender his life for his people. And the father loves the son so much that he gives him this charge for the sake of the son's glory. That's why he gives it. You know what? I'm gonna, I love you, and you're glorious. And you know what the world needs to see? The world needs to see just how glorious you are, son. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you down there, and, and you're going to be slain by them, and you're going to rescue them, and then they will know how glorious you are. Notice, it has nothing to do with us. John chapter 12, verse 27 through 32. Listen very carefully to what, is, what Jesus says about this. He comments on this whole thing in John chapter 12, verse 27 to 32. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Why are they doing this? this? This message isn't for Jesus. Jesus knows how much the Father loves him. There's no doubt in his mind. It's us. He wants to show us how much he loves the Son. And he says, okay, you want to do it? You want to show them what, you, what we're really like? You want to show them who we really are? Here, take on, the, on flesh in Palestine in the first century and go down there and, and die on a cross. And then, when they think they beat you, come up again. And then, then they will have some sense 
of the glory that I have always given you, that I will give you again, my son. What we see upstream of the gospel, what it reveals about the nature of God, is this glory that the Father gives the Son. He, he's done it before, he'll do it again. It's, 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 the, <laughs> the resurrection is just yet the most recent item on the list. Oh, I'll glorify you, 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 I'll, I'll do it again. You want me to do it again, son? I'll do it again. He doesn't get tired of it. Are there chicks in this building? <laughs> I was like, I hear something from the great beyond. <laughs> the son is obeying his father, whatever it costs, and the father has glorified himself in the son and will glorify him again. The point of the cross and the empty tomb are not in the empty tomb are not you and I. Now, there, there's nothing new to this. This is what the authors of the scriptures have been saying from the start. If you go to Isaiah 42:25, this is what the Lord tells us. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does he do it? For his own sake. Now, if you are the original recipients of this, like, what does that mean, your own sake? Well, what is your sake? What is it? What's, what is this inner reasoning that you're doing that causes you to come and save us? And what we have to understand is Jesus comes to reveal that inner reasoning. Right? When we, if you're in Isaiah 42, you're not going to know from that verse. The point that, that of Christ's coming is to, is to answer questions like this. We, don't, we shouldn't, as New Testament Christians, look at this and be like, well, it's a real mystery. It's not a mystery. The reasoning is not a mystery. The reasoning is revealed to us in Jesus. God stands forth, boldly declaring the mystery of his grace. Why he forgives his people cannot be understood by human moral reasoning. The phrase, for my own sake, locates the reason for his grace deep within his own being and requires its glorious display before his creatures. Jesus is showing forth this deep inner reason. And it has to do with the Son and Father's love for one another. To bring glory to himself, God will do what is not required, what is not expected, what is not even thought conceivable, and the reason for it is not found in the objects of his redemption. The reason for it is found in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. Why? Why would he save us? Because he loves the Son. Why? Why would they save us? Because the Son loves the Father. It is wrong to ascribe either to merits or to any sacrifices the redemption of which he is the author of by free grace. Mankind ought to hope for the return for no other reason than because God freely pardons their sins, and being of his own accord appeased by his own mercy, he stretches out his fatherly hand to us. What do we have anything to do in that except to receive? except to be an object. Now, initially, Jesus' statement in John ten seventeen implies that the Father's love is based on the Son's obedience. It sounds an awful lot like that. And I want to, I, I, there's a reason. You should stop when you're reading that and say, wait, what? He loves you? He, you're earning his love by, by the cross? You're dying and therefore he loves you? But, so he hated you until now? Right? You're supposed to stop and think, wait a minute, what is going on here? It is crystal clear that the Father loves Jesus for who he is in himself. 
It's, he declared so at Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3.17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, sounds like he loves him. He confirmed it again at Jesus' transfiguration. Matthew 17.5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, these statements demonstrate that the Father loves Jesus already, long before Calvary. So what does Jesus mean? Jesus makes it crystal clear himself in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Well, it sounds like you have it already, Jesus. What are you doing if you already have the Father's love? What do you mean he loves you because? Now, the Father's love, what we see through the Gospels, is that it gives Jesus the confidence to do the Father's will. Serving his father, not because it pleases the father, but because the father is already pleased. Right? This is the subtle thing that we have to learn from Jesus. We ought to serve the living God. We ought to serve God the Father, not to please him, but because he is already pleased. The source of Jesus' obedience and steadfastness is the father's love. It is not the end, it's the means. It is not the Daytona cup, it's the engine in the car. The Father's love is not earned, it's spent. It's spent. It's something he already has, and there's no end of it, and all he has to do is go out and spend it on the right things. And, And he's constantly tempted to do other things. He's tempted to come into his kingdom a different way. He's tempted in every way you and I are, and all he wants to do is spend the love, the unending amount of love that the Father has given him, on blessing others. Not to earn anything, but to spend it. And isn't he generous? Isn't he open-handed? Now, troubled, well, well, this is even more remarkable, when we realize that Jesus repeatedly makes it clear in John's gospel that the Father's will for him is to lay down his life on the cross. So even that fact doesn't diminish his trust in the Father, his love for the Father, his obedience for the Father. He's like, okay, I'll do anything. Okay, go die. Uh, No. Jesus says, you know, what do you want me to do? You want me to go and die on a cross? Okay, I got enough enough love for that. I have enough of your love to spend on that. Now, he falters, right? You know, he falters just a little bit. He thinks about what's really happening. Once he's he's got this flesh on, he's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Do I have enough love for that? John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And that's what I read before. When the Father's voice is heard from heaven again, I have glorified you, and I will. And, and Jesus is reminded of the abundance of the Father's love that he already has. And he says, okay, yes, I have enough money to write this check. I have enough love to spend on this, dying on this cross, when I'm the king of the universe. I'm going to let these people spit on me and slap me around and call me names, and they're not even going to be, they're so incompetent, they can't even come up with testimony enough to put me to death. But I'll provide it for them. Why? Because I have this love of the Father, and it was given to me to spend it on this. This is what it's all about. Jesus sees no incongruity between the Father's will, the cross, and the Father's unconditional love. And, but isn't it hard? He sees the cross. 
But he knows of the Father's unconditional love. This isn't incongruous. Jesus says, this seems right. This seems why you would give it to me. But how often do we see what's coming down the road? And we think, how is this? This seems incongruous with unconditional love. And what Jesus is doing in his life is revealing something. And what he's revealing is that there is no inconsistency. There is no incongruity between dying on a cross and the Father's unconditional love. If the Father says do it, do it. Even this. Jesus' point is not that the Father's love for him is conditioned on Jesus laying down his life for the sheep. It's made apparent at Jesus' baptism. The Father loves the Son because he is the Son. So what does Jesus mean? Now I want to go at like a, I can't even say 30,000 foot level. We're going to go out on the outside of the galaxy and look in for a moment. And remember who it is that we're talking about. Because we tend to, to think of Jesus as just a guy with an address in first century Palestine. And as I said before, he's more than that, right? The relationship between the Father and the Son is essential, and it is eternal. John doesn't mean that the Father loved Christ because of the crucifixion, but the love of the Father for the Son is love eternally linked with and mutually dependent on the Son's complete alignment with the Father's will and his obedience to that will. The Son has always been perfectly aligned with the Father. He has never wavered for eternity. Jesus wants to show this truth to the world, revealing the heart and inner life of the triune God. Because our God doesn't change. He is. And so when he comes to earth as a man, he's not becoming something. He's not being sanctified in the same way that you and I are. What he's doing is like, all right, listen, listen. I've never wanted to do anything else but what the Father wants. That's it. For eternity, I've done that. And we're like, oh, come on, seriously? No, really, I, really, I've never wanted to do anything else. You're like, come on. <laughs> really? And he's like, okay, watch, watch. What's the worst thing you can think of? Well, let me think of the worst thing I can think of. Hmm. Okay, got it? And then he comes and does something far worse, <laughs> right? He, he becomes a man. He lives for 33 years on this earth when he doesn't have to, putting up with all of this stuff that we all have to put up with, and he doesn't have to. He takes up a cross, he doesn't have to. He dies on it, and he doesn't have to because he didn't do anything. And he's like, okay, see now? See, this is what the Father wanted, and I did it, and to the bitter end, and this is who I've always been. Now, I'm going to do a thought experiment for a moment. This is where things get a little weird. Sometimes when I'm holding on the skinny branches, I'm actually standing on the ground, so it seems firmer than it actually is. But just go with me for a moment. Adam walked in the cool of the day with God. Now, who was that God that he walked with? It's pre-incarnate Jesus. Again, if you have questions about that, I will provide materials. Okay. The image of the invisible God has always been Jesus. Pre-incarnation, post-incarnation. So there in the cool of the day is Adam and Jesus. Now, again, think about this. Adam could never have formulated the question hypothetically I'm about to ask. Because think of all the categories in the question that are impossible for him to understand. But imagine if Adam is walking there with him and says, you know, do you love the Father? 
Now, now think, do you think Adam had any idea about Trinitarian theology? No. Right? But we do. Why? Ooh. Okay. We'll set that aside for a second. Okay? Do you, do you love the Father? Do you know what the Son's answer would have been? Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, I trust him completely. I obey him completely. Unto death. Even death on a cross. And there they are walking along, and I'm just like, well, what's death? What's a cross? And Jesus would just wait. You'll see. Just watch. And through the fall, through the covenants, through the Old Testament, through the Greek and Persian empires rising and falling, through the Hellenization of the known world, the rise of the Roman Empire, and the development of the crucifixion, the coming of the Son and his death on a cross reveals who the God was walking with Adam in the cool of the day. He went through all that just to show him. You want to see? This is what I mean. Centuries later, millennia later, he dies on a cross from crucifixion. They crucify him. Through the slow maturation of scientific man, that's a phrase, through the long development of smithing, to the invention of iron, then nails, then spears, then the crafting of particular nails and a particular spear that we then use to pierce the flesh of the living God, just so that Jesus says, see, that's what I mean. This is what I was talking This is who we are. Right? And I could have said it right there in the garden with Adam, but do you think he would have understood? But once you go and you look at it, like all of that history, all of that pain, all that suffering, all of that work, all of that, right? He's trying and he's trying to get man to get it. And he doesn't. He could have just said, this is who I am. And, but no one would have understood for a second what he was saying. Death provided us with tombs. They were crude at the beginning. But after a time, they developed into elaborate sepulchers of stone. And then Yahweh Elohim came down out of the deep heavens so that he could lay in one and rise from one and say, see, this, this is how I love them. This is how I love the Father. This is how I love the Son. After the fall, God saw that his image was corrupted. It was unfitting and unworthy. I can't have this. My, my, my reputation is on the line. Look at this man that I've made and look what he's done with himself. I can't, I can't let this stand. I can't just wipe the slate clean and start over. So he, he sends angels and men to the task of setting everything right. So he gives them sanctuaries and priesthood, and laws, and sacrificial systems, heaps of incense and piles of torn flesh, and centuries of liturgy. And man was no better off than Adam covering himself with fig leaves. And Jesus says, okay, Dad, it's time now. It's time. They, they, they don't get it, the poor things. They just don't get it. So I'll go down there, and I'll show them what all of this was always about, what the purpose of man was. And what is that? To use the life, to use the authority, to, to spend the love that you were giving me on blessing others, on providing for others, on feeding the sheep, and taking care of them, and tending them, and loving them. Now, this is called the immutability of God. 
He is who he is. He is a fixed point. He does not change. We change. We've, we were with him, and then we weren't. And now we're all, right, hoping to get back. And, and our changing, we're becoming something in relation to that fixed point. But the fixed point is a fixed point. So when Jesus says anything about himself and the Father, he is telling us something that existed before there were light and flowers, before there were chairs and cars, before there was dirt even. Because he did not come to become something. He's not becoming something. He is who and what he is. He is he's come into the world and he's done all of this, all of it, to show us who he really is. So that we would know. That we would be his sheep who know. I know. I know who this person is. I know who this being is. I understand. God is transcendent and imminent. Without losing himself, he can give himself. And while absolutely maintaining his immutability, he can enter in an infinite number of relationships with his creatures. And, and you read the scripture, you're like, you know, it looks like he changes all the time. Yeah, it looks like that. It looks like that because he's dealing with you people who do change all the time. Right? Could you imagine just a wooden, immobile, passionless person that you're just engaged with all the time? No, he gets down here in the muck, and it certainly looks like he changes, but he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> think, I mean, think everything he had to go through just to create the Roman society so that they could invent crucifixion, so that he could kill his boy on it. Now, when you want to go and show somebody you love them, who's got that kind of time? He does. Who has that kind of authority? He does. Who has that kind of love to keep going and persevering after all that? He does. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to know. Ezekiel explains, he says this in Ezekiel 36, 22. Not for your sakes will I do this, O house of Jacob, but for my own sake. I mean, I'm trying to imagine. what They're standing around before they created anything. They're like, you know what? You know how we... I love you, Dad. I love you, son. Yeah, let, let's, let's tell an elaborate story now to demonstrate to one another how much we love each other. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. Let's do that. Do you ever do this at home where you make plays up with your kids? Like, let, you know, it's Mother's Day. Let's, let's, let's write a little play. We'll use puppets and everything. We'll tell Mom how much we love her. And, and, and is Mike really saying that all of human history is that? Yes. Yes. Right? And you're the little puppets. Right? You're, you're the little props. You're the table and the cup. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it not, is it not good enough to just be clay? And, okay. Okay. Again, we'll leave that for another day. They wanted to tell each other, I love you. And look at, look at what they went through in order to do it. Colossians. Go with me for a second to Colossians chapter 1. And this is who they are in and of themselves. This is who they've always been. We are merely props in this story. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He says, see, I made peace, Dad, between you and them. And the father says, yes, you did. Come, sit at my right hand, and be and rule and reign with me as we always have. And isn't it glorious now that they get to actually see? And what we'll do is we'll write it down. We'll write it all down, and we'll pass this love letter around, and everyone will be able to see how much we love one another. They'll be able to see it. They'll know. They'll know. And then our sheep who hear it will say, yes, this is the story that explains everything. Let us follow them. Let's be like them. Let's do as they do. This life that they give us, this authority that they give us, let's spend it the way they've spent it. That's the point. That's what they want from us. Now, he goes on in John chapter 10, verse 18, and he says, No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And right there he tells us, right? Who's behind this whole thing? Who's moving this whole story along? Who is in charge the whole time? And this is where we get into a little bit of difficulty. And I, again, skinny skinny branches, okay? It feels firm because I'm on the ground. But they call it the passive obedience of Jesus. Right? His cross is the passive obedience. Now, that's what they've called it for a long time, and I'm not going to argue with Jonathan Edwards. I'm not going to argue too much with the Westminster divines. But I'm just going to say that that's really confusing. It's confusing. Okay? Because who is driving the story all along? Is, is, is he really what we would call passive? What's really interesting is that he is the perfect Lamb of God. Now, if, if the perfect lamb of God comes onto the scene and somebody's got to kill the perfect lamb of God in order to take away the sins of the world, can you find for me a high priest worthy of that calling? No, what's fascinating about the story is he's both the lamb and the high priest. He's the only one with the authority to kill the perfect lamb, and he's the only one with the life in himself and the love in himself to be the perfect lamb. Hebrews 8.3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He's like, you know, I'm going to go down here as the high priest. You know what I need is a lamb. High priest, check. Lamb, check. It's all here in myself. It's his work first to last. Now, in the Passion, there are men there, right? And they seem quite active, don't they? Quite vigorous, quite passionate about what they're doing. They're beating him and whipping him and judging him and deriding him and piercing him and lifting him up. And there he is. What's he doing? He's just standing there taking it all. So, right? Passive obedience? Is that? But they are secondary causes, start to finish. The active person is him. The passive ones are them. They're just like little puppets. And yet he he made it so that we would make free choices. Oh, oh man. What? The two parallel lines, first causes, second causes? 
he decreed before time that I would, I would have chosen this tie on this day. And then yesterday when I was looking at my clothes, I was like, you know what looks really good with that vest and that shirt? Is that tie. I'm like, man, I make good choices. I'm not going to get into all that. Because, again, I only have so much time. But just listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28. You tell me who's passive. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's Jesus doing? Okay, well, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He finalizes the envy and resolve of his enemies to slay him. Jesus chooses to go to Jerusalem, which surprises his disciples because they all know they want to kill him. Jesus has set his flint his face like flint to go there and to accomplish this task. He knows all about Judas's betrayal, and yet does he tell anyone? Straight up, Peter, right? Could you imagine Peter would have found out? Woo. Talk about a beatdown. Hey, Peter, he's going to betray us. Okay. Oh. You never see Judas again. I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> he doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't stop anyone. Oh, oh, and then it actually says, you know, you know where Judas knows where to find him? He knows exactly where to find him, the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is like, you know where we're going to go today, boys? Bethany. No. He's like, I have a date to keep. He is the one driving the story along. It is in, he is the one with the authority to slay the perfect Lamb of God, and he is himself the perfect Lamb of God. He leaves it to no one else because no one else can do it. And, and as I mentioned before, who's ultimately the one who gives the testimony that actually causes them to kill him? He's sitting there listening to these clowns, and listening to these clowns, he's like... Okay, I'm the son of God. They're like, ah! <laughs> John 3.27, a person cannot receive anything unless it is given him from heaven. And this is this argument that Jesus had with Pilate, right? Pilate's like, well, you know, I have authority over you. Jesus is like, ha, okay. That's cute, that's cute. You, you have no authority unless it comes down out of heaven, buddy. And I have all the authority, and look at how I'm using it, and look how you're using it. Now, what does all of this reveal to us? What do you know now that you didn't know at the start of this? There's two things, two things. As you go and as you eat your feast and as you drink your wine and as you relax with your family and your friends, as you celebrate, as you go into your work week, next week, I want you to remember two things from this. I want you to know two things. The first is this, that you are a prop in a love story. And not some raunchy rom-com on Netflix, okay? This is a real love story, a true love story, pure and perfect and white as the driven snow. And you are in that story. You're a prop in that story. Now, to be a prop in this story ought to be the most cherished reality of our lives. Why does God the Father pay any attention to us? Why is God the Father mindful of man in any way, shape, or form? We fell. So the Father sent the Son in the flesh to die for us. When the Father looks at the redeemed, he sees what Jesus did with the life and the authority that he gave him and is overwhelmed with adoration. When you feel the love of God, when you you feel his gaze upon you, when you feel his spirit 
descending in you. You feel him thriving inside of you. You feel that love that God the Father has for you. It, it is because he sees the son's love for him. That's what makes us worthy. That's what it, why we are here. That is the role that we are going to be playing for eternity. You will forever be the bouquet of flowers passing back and forth and back and forth between them. The point of the resurrection isn't about how much Jesus loves you. It's about the first and second persons of the Trinity showing each other how much they love one another. The Father gives the Son a fallen, filthy world, and Jesus washes it in his own blood and gives it back to the Father clean and new. And in this, they say to one another, I love you. And the Father turns to all of us and says, See now this. This is who we have been forever. Join us. Come. Be a part of this story. Be a part of this family. Be an object of love that passes between us. Now, the second thing that I want you to know is that Jesus was given life and authority by his Father. And he spent those on trusting and obeying the Father unto death. This love that you receive from the Father because he sees the Son's love for him in you, he loves you. And what are you supposed to spend the love on? Your authority, right, as the church, which we do have, your authority as a parent, your authority as a husband, your authority in, in the world, the authority given to us, what is it supposed to be spent on? Taking up a cross and following the path laid out for us. Jesus is the model for the new humanity. What is better than life itself? What is better than life itself? Obedience to the Father, trust in the Father, absolute trust and obedience. Yes, let it wash over me. I trust you, and I, I don't have a great plan, but you have, you, you have this great love story that you're telling, and take me up into that story, and fill me with this life and this authority. Fill me, that I might go forth and spend it on blessing others and showing forth in the world the heart of God. You are a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God. That is what you will be for eternity. The grace given to us, the love shown us, are the gas in the tank as we turn the laps around the sun. It's not the prize we get at the end. It's the engine in the car. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this is who you are. You are the object of love between the Father and the Son. Now, I'm going to just point out here, this is it's always how it works. I went through this with my wife, and she asked a very obvious question. What about the Holy Spirit? Now, I don't know if you've been wondering that, but you've noticed I've practically not mentioned him at all. And I'm going to tell you something now. Because the Spirit is inside of you, and he hasn't been left out of this story. Right? But he is the love that passes between them. He's the force that, that proceeds from father to son and son to father that animates them, that motivates them, that, that causes them to move forward. He is the love that passes between them. And that love has now been, been placed on you. Why? Because you are the objects of love. You are the object, the, the bouquet of flowers, that the father and son look upon you and see you and see what they have done. Say, see, see our love. 
That's, right? That's the God who you serve. That's whose spirit dwells in you. Go forth in the power of that. Go forth telling that story with your life. Go forth and spend big. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy and grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for who you are and who you have always been and who you have shown us and and for showing us that, Lord, that we might participate, that we might know you, that we might follow you, that we might take it up into this story, Lord, and glorify you with our lives. We thank you and praise you and amen.